So we're starting a new topic tonight called loitering in Luke. And I mean that pretty much literally. We're just going to kind of loiter in the gospel of Luke a little bit over the next several weeks and point out some things maybe that you've never seen before, um, not only in the gospels, but in particular, the gospel of Luke. Uh, there are some interesting things that are there that can be uncovered, and I'm in no hurry. In other words, if we cover three slides tonight, that's great. If we cover 15 slides tonight, that's fine. So don't worry about getting through the handout. Uh, we'll pick up uh, from where we left off tonight uh, next week. So this has kind of been complement to what we're doing on Sunday morning. So we're doing a series on Sunday morning called Lithographs, and I've been showing you some of the different impressions of inclusion that Luke has in his gospel that the other gospel writers leave out. So tonight, what I want to do is come back to the gospel of Luke and talk about some things that relate to all the gospels in some extent, and then in particular, look at chapter one of Luke. So if you have a Bible, that's where we'll eventually be tonight is in Luke chapter one. So tonight, as we get started, I want to, uh, first of all, just give you an introduction to Luke's account. And I want you to see its connection to some other things back in the book of Genesis. So I've told you to turn to Luke chapter one, but there's going to be some times tonight where I'll have you turn back to the book of Genesis. So if you have a ribbon in your Bible and you want to go back to Genesis and leave it there, uh, we'll be going back and forth just a little bit because uh, we're going to see some fascinating interconnected uh, elements between the two. So tonight, uh, if you have questions, just stop, ask them. Um, we're in no hurry. And if uh, a particular topic uh, is something that you've never heard before and we need to uh, massage it a little bit more to understand what it is, uh, your question is going to be the questions of others as well. Uh, some people watch this online uh, after I upload it to YouTube, and it's some of the questions they might be asking as well. So uh, don't be afraid at all. Uh, we're all friends here. So as we get started, what I want to do is talk a little bit about the overview element of this uh, particular um, book. And first off, what we find in the Gospel of Luke is that there are many elements in the Gospel of Luke that are not found in other Gospels. Uh, much of this is very unique, and you'll see this by a graph I'm going to show you in a little while. But the uniqueness of what Luke chooses to enter into his account of the life of Christ is related to people that are on the margins, people that are overlooked in the other Gospels to a certain extent. Uh, these are people that are secondary on the ladder of society in the first century, people like the women, the poor, and the outliers on the margins, whether it's because of their age or economics or whatever it may be, what we find is that these individuals have been pushed into the background 
And as they have been pushed into the background, uh, they are often lost and their issues are often lost in the process as well. Luke doesn't allow that to happen. Luke brings them out into the front and shows us a lot about these individuals and how God's work is continuing uh, to uh, be able to work through these individuals that other people are not uh, participating in. So I have told you on a number of occasions that one great way to get a good look at an overview of the book is to go to thebibleproject.com. They have done a video or sometimes multiple videos on every book of the Bible. And they do it in a unique way. They do it through animation. And we're not going to watch, there's two videos for Luke, but I'm going to watch the first part of it because it's going to introduce some concepts for us uh, that will then play into our understanding of Luke as we bring up some of the other topics. So we're going to watch this video and the other element that you'll find at the uh, BibleProject.com uh, is these charts that you can print off. And I know it looks intimidating. It's one of those things that has too much text. But what they have done is they have given information that relates to the video and they kind of allow it to evolve. So, for example, on this particular handout, it goes through the first half of Luke, which is kind of right down the middle of this particular chart here. So if you find interest in that and you want to review some of the things that are on the video, you can find that on the BibleProject.com. So let's watch this. And as we watch it, then uh, if you have some questions, we'll touch upon those things. And uh, then we're going to introduce the Gospel of Luke as built upon the information that is in this video. Okay, let's go at it. The Gospel according to Luke, it's one of the earliest accounts of Jesus' life, and it's actually part one of a unified two-volume work, Luke Acts. If you compare the opening lines of both of these books, it's clear that they come from the same author. And there are internal clues in the book of Acts, as well as an early tradition that identifies the author as Luke, the traveling companion and co-worker of Paul the Apostle, who we know was also a doctor. Luke opens his work with a preface telling us how and why he wrote this book. He acknowledges that there's many other fine accounts of Jesus' life out there, but he wanted to go back to the eyewitness traditions of as many early disciples as he could in order to produce what he calls an orderly account about the things that have been fulfilled among us. Now that word fulfilled shows us why Luke wrote this account. For him, the story of Jesus isn't just ancient history. He wants to show how it's the fulfillment of the long covenant story of God in Israel, and bigger than that, of the story of God in the whole world. The book's design is fairly clear. There's a long introduction that sets up the stories of John the Baptist and Jesus. Then in chapters three to nine, Luke presents a robust portrait of Jesus and his mission in his home region of Galilee. After that, the large midsection of the book is Jesus's long journey to Jerusalem, which leads to the story's climax, Jesus's final week in Jerusalem leading up to his death and resurrection, which then leads on into the book of Acts. In this video, we're just going to focus on the first half of Luke's gospel. 
The extended introduction tells in parallel the birth stories of John the Baptist and Jesus. So you have this elderly priestly couple, Zechariah and Elizabeth, and then this young unmarried woman, Mary and Joseph. They both receive an unlikely divine promise that they're going to have a son. Both promises are fulfilled then, as John and then Jesus are born, and both parents sing poems of celebration. Now, these poetic songs, they're filled with echoes from the Old Testament psalms and prophets, showing how these children will fulfill God's ancient promises. But these poems also preview each child's role in the story to follow. So John is the prophetic messenger promised in the Torah and the prophets who's going to prepare Israel to meet their God. And Jesus, he's the messianic king promised to David, who's going to bring God's reign over Israel and God's blessing to the nations, just like he promised to Abraham. After this, Mary brings Jesus to the Jerusalem temple for his dedication, and two elderly prophets, Anna and Simeon, they see Jesus and they recognize who he is. And Simeon sings his own song, a poem inspired by the prophet Isaiah. He says, this child is God's salvation for Israel, and he will become a light to the nations. So with all this anticipation, the story moves forward into the next main section, where Luke presents Jesus and his mission. He sets the stage with John's renewal movement at the Jordan River, where he's calling a new, repentant, recommitted Israel into existence through baptism. He's preparing for the arrival of God's kingdom. And then Jesus appears as the leader of this new Israel, and he's marked out by the spirit and the voice of God from heaven. He is the beloved son of God. After this, Luke follows with the genealogy, and it traces Jesus' origins back to David, then back to Abraham, and then all the way back to Adam from the book of Genesis. Luke's claiming here that Jesus is the messianic king of Israel who will bring God's blessing, but not only to Israel, the family of Abraham. He is here for all the sons of Adam, for all humanity. After this, Luke has strategically placed the story of Jesus going to his hometown, Nazareth, where he launches his public mission. At a synagogue gathering, Jesus stands up and he reads from the scroll of Isaiah, saying, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me to preach good news to the poor and freedom for the prisoners, new sight for the blind, and freedom for the oppressed. Now, along with the other Gospels, Jesus is presented here. He's the Messianic King bringing the good news of God's kingdom. But what Luke uniquely highlights are the social implications of Jesus' mission. So he brings freedom. The Greek word is aphasis. It literally means release, and it refers to the ancient Jewish practice of the year of Jubilee described in Leviticus 25. It's when all Israelite slaves were released, when people's debts were canceled, when land that was sold is returned back to families. It's all a symbolic reenactment of God's liberating justice and mercy. And then Jesus says that this good news of release is specifically for the poor. Now, in the Old Testament, the poor, or in Hebrew, ani, it's a much broader category than just people who don't have very much money. It refers also to people of low social status in their culture, like people with disabilities or women, and children, and the elderly. It also can include social outsiders, like people of other ethnic groups, or people whose poor life choices have placed them outside acceptable religious circles. And Jesus says that God's kingdom is especially good news for these people. So after this, Luke immediately puts in front of us a large block of stories, showing us what Jesus' good news for the poor looks like. 
It involves the healing of a bedridden sick woman, or a man who has a skin disease, or someone who's paralyzed. There are stories here also about Jesus welcoming into his community a tax collector like Levi, who's not financially poor, but he is a social outsider. There's a story about Jesus forgiving a prostitute. Luke showing us how Jesus' kingdom brought restoration and reversal of people's whole life circumstances. He's expanding the circle of people who get invited into to discover the healing power of God's kingdom. And as Jesus' mission attracts a large following, he does something even more provocative. He forms these people into a new Israel by appointing over them the 12 disciples as leaders corresponding to the 12 tribes of Israel. And then Jesus teaches his manifesto of an upside-down kingdom, or as Luke calls it, the sermon given on the plain. He says God's love for the outsider and the poor means that his kingdom brings a reversal of all of our value systems. He is here to form a new alternative people of God who are going to respond to Jesus' invitation by practicing radical generosity, by serving the poor. People who are going to lead by serving and live by peacemaking and forgiveness. People who are deeply pious but who reject religious hypocrisy. Now, Jesus' radical kingdom vision, his claim to divine authority, it starts to generate resistance and controversy, especially from Israel's religious leaders. His outreach to questionable people, it's a threat to their religious traditions and their sense of social stability. And so they start accusing Jesus of blaspheming God, of being a drunk and mixing with sinners. And so this section culminates in a new revelation of Jesus' mission to his disciples. He says that, yes, he is the messianic king and that he's going to assert his reign over Israel by dying in Jerusalem, by becoming the suffering servant king of Isaiah 53, who dies for the sins of Israel. And then the shocking idea, it gets explored in the next story, as Jesus goes up a mountain with three of his disciples, and he's suddenly transformed in front of them. They're enveloped in this cloud of God's presence, who announces, this is my chosen son. And then Moses and Elijah are there, the two other prophets who encountered God's presence and voice on a mountain. And Luke tells us that they're talking together about Jesus's exodus that he was about to fulfill in Jerusalem. Now, that Greek word exodus, it's a clear reference to the exodus story. Luke is portraying Jesus here as a new Moses who will lead his newly formed Israel into freedom and release from the tyranny of sin and evil in all of its forms, personal, spiritual, and social. And that's going to lead us into the second half of the book. But for now, that's the first half of the gospel according to Luke. Okay, so with that in mind, I want to go back to this overview slide just for a second. And you can see down at the bottom, uh, it talks about how Luke highlights the work of salvation. Now, one thing to keep in mind, when we uh, talk about the word salvation, don't reduce it to forgiveness of sins that get you into heaven after you die. It, it, it has to do with the deliverance of God of a new type of world that he is going to bring about through his son. And so one of the key questions that is hinted at in that video is the question about the legitimacy of Jesus as the Jewish Messiah. Now, in light of the fact that Jesus dies upon a cross, something unexpected and unwanted 
by the Jewish people, there is this tension in the back of our minds as to would Israel's Messiah really have to undergo such suffering? And so one of the purposes of Luke is to show us that that was his intent all along, to come as the Messiah, to lay himself down as the suffering servant, and to bring in a new kind of kingdom. And with that in mind, what we're going to see is in the Gospel of Luke, there is a new community of people, but it's not just of Jewish people. It is also made up of Gentiles as well. That raises another question. How do Gentiles come into this? So one of the things that happens in the Gospel of Luke by a concentration on those that are pushed to the margins is also a concentration on Gentiles and how they fit into the program as well. So all of these things are good to know as you get into the details of it. So let me see if you have some questions either about this overview slide or of the video or anything that was portrayed uh, through the video that might not be uh, not might not be clear to you. And is there anything that we can address there? Okay, if not, now here's the other thing you'd begin to deal with. When you read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you have similar material, but you have a lot of unique material. You have some material that's in some of the Gospels. You have some material that is unique to a particular uh, Gospel writer. So what we're going to do just for a moment is talk a little bit about this question. Do the Gospels disagree? And the answer to that question is yes, they do. Well, put on hold for a moment, why? But that often sets people uh, fearful because many times they think that all these gospels are kind of writing a historical account of how things really happened and when they happened. When you look at the gospels, you'll find some very significant differences between them. And depending upon how long you've been in church or how you have been taught, you have been taught that, well, you have four accounts and these four accounts, if you take all four of them and you kind of mush them together, you then have kind of the life of Christ in stereo. The problem is how do you make those things that disagree harmonize? Well, I want to show you, you see a picture there of a professor that I had by the name of J. Dwight Pentecost. He wrote this book called A Harmony of the Words and Works of Jesus Christ. I have this particular book somewhere in a box in my crawl space. I don't know where, in which box it is. And at the time I was in seminary, I thought this was gold because it was taking all the passages and being able to kind of shuffle them like a deck of cards together to make sense of A to B to C to D all the way to Z. In other words, oh, finally, we're able to 
harmonize the life of Christ and have a sequence and have a chronology and have a geography where all of them harmonize. Well, this was a very popular thing um, when I was in seminary. And it was the way to try to get the disagreements between the gospel writers to agree. So J. Dwight Pentecost here wrote this book. And I took this book because I was I took this course because I was so interested in seeing how everything finally fits together. Because when you read the gospels, you can kind of get lost. You know, you read one event early in one gospel, and then it shows up later in another gospel, and it makes you question, well, did this happen once, or did it happen twice, or more than once? And, and you know, you saw in the video, Luke has uh, the teachings of Jesus, but it's called the Sermon on the Plain, whereas in Matthew, it's called the Sermon on the Mount. Oh, well, why is there a difference of language? Why is why aren't they the same length? Uh, why are they placed at different spots in Jesus' ministry? So harmonization of the Gospels would say, well, if Jesus taught it once, he probably taught, taught the same material multiple times. Well, what you have, though, is you lose by doing this. And I did not realize this until just several years back. And that is, you lose the distinctiveness of each gospel when you try to mush them together. So some of the things you can harmonize, uh, it's not too difficult to do. The problem is this, and it's this point right here. The problem is that it presumes that each gospel is basically saying the same thing. And, it, and that's its primary goal, to give us a biographical account of the life of Jesus. And that's not really true. There's a lot that's left out. John, even at the end of his gospel, says, if everything was written about Jesus, the whole world would be filled with books. Well, that's an exaggeration. That's hyperbole. But what he's saying is there's much more that could be said about Jesus that was overlooked or omitted or uh, neglected. So what we find happening here is when you add it all together, some differences large, some differences small, it's just too difficult to make it all harmonize. Now, poor J. Dwight Pentecost, he wrote this book and he built his career on it. When I was sitting in this particular course, this was a workbook that had the scripture and then there was a textbook that had his text. And I'm writing down notes feverishly as he's talking. I had a guy sitting next to me, and he kind of nudges me on the elbow. And he says, it's right here in the textbook. He had his whole book memorized. And, he, and in teaching the course, he was quoting it word for word. And when some students were raising their hand about questions about where they felt as he tried to make things harmonize that it just didn't make a lot of sense or it was really kind of over the top in trying to get it to agree, he would not answer them. 
So the uh, student would ask a question and say, what about, um, you know, I'll take this example, the Sermon on the Mount again. Why does it say Sermon on the Mount in Matthew? Why does it say Sermon on the Plain in Luke? Why are they in different spots in Jesus' ministry? Why are they of different lengths? I mean, even the Lord's Prayer is different between Matthew and Luke. And, and he would give some flippant answer and say, what's well, right here in my book, you know, and then he'd move on. Never wrestled with it. And he never really gave answers to what I'm going to tell you by way of introduction tonight. It is in the differences that we see the beauty of each gospel writer and what they're doing. Okay, let me stop there. Do you have some thoughts? Questions? So, do the Gospels disagree? Yes, they do. But don't let that make you nervous, okay? It's in the fact that they are different that we see that they're not trying to write a harmony of the life of Christ. They're not. They're trying to do some very specific things, okay? All right, here we go. I love this little meme that I ran across. It's of Jesus' uh, Sermon on the Mount, and Jesus is saying to those who are listening, okay, everyone, now listen carefully. I don't want you to end up with four different versions of this. <laughs> when we think about oral tradition, when we think about the fact that these things were not written down at the time that Jesus told them, what we find is gospel writers often had to rely on other resources. The power in the differences is the resources they had, the people that they thought about investigating. So I want you to look at Luke chapter one, verses one through four. Notice what Luke says at the very uh, start of his gospel. He says many, well, I wouldn't count three other gospels as many, but Luke says, many have undertaken to compile a narrative about the events that have been fulfilled among us, just as the original witnesses and servants of the word handed them down to us. It also seemed good to me, since I have carefully investigated everything from the very first, to write to you in an orderly sequence, most honorable Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things about which you have been instructed. So the way Luke begins his gospel is, I didn't see any of this. I had to investigate it. I had to research it. I had to make sense of it myself. Um, and what he does is he puts forth to this title Theophilus, whether a person or a group of people, he puts forth before the audience, uh, he puts it out on the table. And this same paragraph is virtually identical at the beginning of the Gospel of Acts, uh, not Gospel of Acts, Book of Acts. And uh, it's, so the audience is the same and the writer is the same. And so Luke and Acts is a two volume work. Now, what we find is 
these individuals that have been taught that the Gospels are all basically the same ignore this opening paragraph. They're not. Luke was a second generation uh, follower of Christ in the sense that he never saw Jesus. He was never taught by Jesus. He was a companion of the Apostle Paul, as we're told in the book of Acts. So what he is doing is giving us his impression of the life of Christ for a specific reason. And the reasons he is doing this is to give to us a fuller understanding of who Messiah this belongs to, not just Jews, but also Gentiles, and whose kingdom it also belongs to, not just Jews, but even those on the lower grid of society in the first century. Okay, let me stop there. Thoughts, questions, comments? Okay. So the first thing to overcome is what I would call the big misunderstanding. Saying the same thing is not the primary goal of the Gospels. The Gospels are different because the authors are different. And what we find is that they have their own audience. They have kind of their own agenda that they're trying to get to. And they basically had to write what they knew. Uh, in other words, not, not every one of them was standing by Jesus' side when they heard Jesus teach. Mark is another example of that. Mark was not in the presence of Jesus. Matthew was not initially a follower of Jesus. What we find is he comes along a little bit later. He's a tax collector. Um, it would be interesting to know how much of that earthly ministry of Jesus he was exposed to. John's a different story. John is part of that inner circle of Jesus. You find that Jesus it has a has 12 disciples, but there are those that he was especially close to. And it seems as though um, John was the beloved disciple of Jesus. And that's the way he refers to himself in his gospel, the beloved disciple. So what we find is these writers are writing in such a way that they are taking what they know about Jesus that has been handed down to them orally, first of all, because initially it was never written down. But then after things were written down, using those resources. And as they use those resources, which would not have been in abundance when you don't have a printing press or a Xerox machine, any copies of anything had to be handwritten. So they had some things available to them. They had many stories that had been handed down over the first several decades after the life of Christ. And they, ba they basically had to do their own homework. As they take this material, they will adjust it and change it even at times to suit the purpose of what they're trying to accomplish. And what we find is each writer in the Bible uh, does the same exact 
thing. They take the material available to them and they try to apply it to who they are trying to reach. And with that in mind, what we find is that even books of the Bible have tension between them because there's different emphasis. So this idea that the Bible is this one harmonious book is to misunderstand the very nature of the Bible. So the Bible's an, an anthology. It is a group of books. And just like Shakespeare, the anthologies of Shakespeare, there are different acts and different plays. And what you find is they have different emphases and they have different purposes as well. So having said that, that brings up what is often called the synoptic problem. Now, synoptic means one view. And Matthew, Mark, and Luke, uh, and Luke all kind of look the same in the sense that they cover a lot of the same stories, although they have some unique materials. John has a whole different agenda and a whole different set of miracles and, and stories that he tells about the life of Jesus. But the synoptic problem is, who came along first? Who was the first writer? Was it Matthew, Mark, or Luke? And who did the other writers have access to? The usual conclusion is that Mark, which is a second-generation follower of Jesus, was actually the earliest gospel. And Mark's gospel is also the shortest one, if you read it. And what we find is that Matthew and Luke, it appears to have um, depended upon what Mark put together. Now, Mark was also closely associated with the apostle Peter. So what Mark wrote down probably came from the stories that Peter told him. So having said that, the synoptic problem shows that there are commonalities and differences between Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Again, keep John to the side. Uh, he's not a part of the Synoptic Gospels. Now, this is what this looks like. Okay, so I did not put this in your notes. Here, Esther, you can see this. But there's a relationship here. There is only 3% of material that's unique to Mark, but 18% that is shared between Mark and Matthew. There's 3% of Mark that's shared between Mark and Luke. It's called a triple tradition because then the majority of the gospel of Mark is shared between Luke and Matthew actually 46 and 41%. Then you also have percentages that are unique to Luke and percentages that are unique to Matthew. But then you have elements that are shared between Luke and Matthew, but not Mark. Now, I know it looks like an engineering diagram, okay? Here's what I'm trying to show you. There is overlap and uniqueness. It appears as though with the percentages, 41% and 46%, that Mark probably was the earliest gospel upon whom Luke and Matthew depend. So that's what we're told in the first paragraph, right? Luke investigated everything, 
And as he did so, he relied upon the testimony of Mark's material as well as eyewitnesses. We're told in verse 2, the original eyewitnesses. So when you hear the term synoptic problem, scholars have spent their life trying to figure out how this material relates to one another. And those are only three Gospels. Remember, it says here in verse one, many have undertaken to compile a narrative. You have other Gospels that are not in the Bible. Some of them are called Gnostic Gospels. There are others that just didn't make the cut in the early church of being in this uh, anthology of material. And so can you imagine if you also added in all of those Gospels as well and see how much overlap it is? You can see it's a science unto itself. It really is. And so scholars are very dedicated to this task. Now, when you multiply not only one, uh, one scroll, I'm using this as if it's one scroll of Mark, one scroll of Luke, one scroll of Matthew and you have copies of material that are called families of manuscripts, what you have is multiple manuscripts of Matthew and Luke and Mark. And then even the manuscripts between Mark and Mark don't often agree because there's scribal errors. There's, uh, there's omission of words. There's omissions of what we call verses. There uh, are often misspellings and stuff because, hey, when you're copying things by hand, mistakes are made. OK, so does that make sense to you? I will quickly move on. I'm not going to sit on this, but that could be that could be a study for three months in and of itself. But any thoughts, questions, comments? OK. So I want to give you an example. So this is found in Mark 2.22, Matthew 9.17, and Luke 5.37-39. And this is just one example. There's multiples of them. So in Mark, the earliest gospel, it says, And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the wine will burst the skins and the wine is lost. So are the skins. But the one who puts new wine into fresh wineskins, well, that's the one that's able to preserve the, the wine. Now, we know Jesus is not referring to wine as much as traditions and teachings. That's what the wine and wineskins represent. And what we find is that the point is pretty simple in Mark here. The point uh, of it is new wineskins um, is to show that sometimes the new can't be contained in old familiar patterns. In other words, some of the very things that Jesus was teaching was new uh, to those that were listening. They didn't see how it fit into Judaism. There were laws against doing work on the Sabbath, healing on the Sabbath, all those type of things. And Jesus comes along and says, hey, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. And, you know, by reading the Gospels, Jesus did a lot of healings on the Sabbath. And some of his best work was done on a day of prohibition. Matthew 9.17 adds something. So you have new wine that's preserved. 
in the Mark account. It says in Matthew, neither is new wine put into old wineskins. It's the same teaching. Otherwise, the skins burst and the wine is spilled and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins. And so both are preserved. So there's a little bit of a twist there, isn't there? In other words, um, there is this idea of just keep the old wine in the old wine skins, put the new wine in the new wine skins. And down here in this lower thing, the old wine skins are kept from breaking because you have old wine in them. And you're able to preserve the old, but you're able to accept the new as well. Do you see the difference kind of between the two? Okay, so Matthew uh, is talking about two different things, talking about tradition and new truth and holding on to them both. Now, notice what Luke does. Oh, my goodness. He confuses the situation a little bit here. In Luke 5, 37 through 39, Luke takes the same teachings, and here's what he says. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins, otherwise the new wine will burst the skins and will be spilled and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. And no one, after drinking old wine, desires new wine, but says the old is good. Luke is saying, yeah, new wine, it's great, put it into new wineskins, but the old is better. <laughs> so Mark and Matthew don't put that in at all. In other words, Luke is saying the old is almost to be preferred. Preferred. Now, if you're a wine drinker, you know the older the better, right? Because it's aged. What's interesting in this is why would Luke do that? Why would he take this teaching and change it that way? Ah, that comes about when we see that what we saw in the video, he's trying to show that Jesus is the new Moses leading a new Exodus for a new group of people that is the new Israel that is consists of both Jews and Gentiles. And so what he is saying is the old is preferred because that's where the new is built upon. Don't let go of it. Continue to build upon it. Now, can you see the differences? Same story, same teaching. But each gospel writer chooses to emphasize something different. Do you have some thoughts there? So that's what's a, an example of what is called the synoptic problem. How do these things fit together? So when I had you look at this guy here, and he would take it and he would mush it all together. And he would either downplay or ignore certain things and try to fit them all together. But you lose the uniqueness and distinctiveness of each gospel writer if you do that. And I understand why he was trying to do it. Because people often thought, well, if the gospels disagree, then the gospels can't be trusted. And our faith is built upon shaky ground. But the premise is wrong. 
The premise is built upon the fact that we got to make all these things agree rather than understanding that each has their own unique uh, attempt to portray Jesus in a certain way to a certain audience. Okay. You ready to keep going? All right. So even the gospel writers are trying to work out the teachings of Jesus. It's not just us. They are trying to see how it relates to their own day, how it relates to their own audience and to their own circumstances. And if it's true for the gospel writers, it's also true for us as well. Figuring out how the teachings of Jesus apply in the 21st century is a, is a huge task to figure out how ancient teachings from an ancient culture in an ancient context relates to a different world. And so what we find is that gospel writers, it appears, are trying to do the very same thing with the oral tradition, the eyewitnesses that they did have opportunity to talk to, as well as whatever written material was available to them. Any other thoughts uh, on these slides before we go ahead? I have one. Um, this doesn't bother me that they aren't the same exactly. And I was thinking about being a teacher that you teach every every year I may teach the same class. I, I teach it completely differently. Mm -hmm. And depending on who's in my class and how receptive they are, sometimes I won't hang out on a topic that they're not interested in. And, and in this sense, it must have been really important if you're talking to, say, fellow Gentiles to really get that message across where you know, if you're talking to the Jew, a Jewish audience, that would not be the message you want to hit home. So that's right. I, this, yeah, this, I like how you're bringing this up. Yeah, uh, that's a great point. And you know this personally. I know this personally because, you know, I, I was a professor for many years as well. And and that is each class is different, even if the material or topic is the same, just because of the nature of the class, who's in the class that type of thing, or your research has added certain things mm -hmm. for the class that you're teaching three years down the line from the first time you were teaching it or whatever. So it's always in process. And Kay, that's great. That's a wonderful illustration. We do it all the time. Teachers do yeah. it all the time. Yeah. And and it it's actually what makes the class compelling, right? Is to... Yeah to to change it to the needs of the moment so thank you other thoughts questions okay so what's the common denominator here then the common denominator between the gospel writers is that they're primarily jewish books now you say well wait a minute uh, I thought Luke was a Gentile. He is. However, the way he is writing his gospel is written in a Jewish um, 
uh, technique or Jewish approach. So think about this for a moment. The Gospels are not a Gentile representation of the life and teachings of Jesus. They're primarily Jewish. Some are more Jewish than others. Like Matthew quotes the Old Testament up and down, back and forth. Mark, no, not as much. Luke, hmm, not as much. John, a little bit. Um, what we find is that when we really think about the life of Jesus, his whole life really was contained within a very um, small proximity of, uh, of the world. I mean, when you think about how small the Holy Land is, and I've never been there, but it's only 100 miles north to south and probably 50 to 75 miles east to west. Um, and that's not a real big territory. Jesus spent the majority of his time up in Galilee to the north, and that's up around the Sea of Galilee. And that's he grew up in a small little village in uh, in Nazareth, uh, close to um, close to the uh, coastline, but in from the coastline a little bit, the Mediterranean Sea. And what we find is that. He probably had a very small world until he started his public ministry. He probably didn't have a lot of exposure to the non-Jewish world. His parents were very devout. Um, his parents were Jewish to the core, even though Mary was a Galilean and Galileans weren't looked upon with as much favor as Judeans, that southern uh, part. Um, but what we find is that uh, Jesus, probably until he begins his public ministry, maybe he only had exposure to Gentiles from time to time. And it probably wasn't considered very favorable, in fact, uh, because Jews did not like Gentiles during that age. So what we find is that um, his world is, is very small, and yet at the same time, what we find is he was probably exposed quite extensively to the poor. His family was poor. And at one time, even in his public ministry, he says the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. In other words, he doesn't have a home of his own uh, to be able to um, to go, go home to. So while Luke is this Gentile writer by birth, he is an individual that is probably a Gentile proselyte. Okay, come back to that very first paragraph, Luke chapter 1. So we said, many have undertaken to compile a narrative about the events that have been fulfilled among us, just as the original eyewitnesses and servants of the word handed them down to us. It also seemed good to me, since I have carefully investigated everything from the very first, to write to you in an orderly sequence, most honorable Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things about which you have been instructed. If you have a pencil, you want to circle that word instructed. G, uh, Luke 
had never seen Jesus, but he had probably been a proselyte to Judaism. And that's what he's doing for this individual Theophilus or this group of people, uh, because Theophilus is a combination name, theos meaning God, phileo meaning love, lovers of God. It could be a group of people. He would have been an individual after he had gone through some type of catechism, and that's the word that's used here for instructed, catechized. Um, one who has been instructed, uh, he probably heard by his attendance in the synagogue, he probably heard the ancient stories of the Jewish people. And he probably had processed that story for a, a length of time. And even before he met Paul and became an associate of Paul and traveled with Paul in the book of Acts. So Luke, even though he's Gentile by birth, is an individual that has primarily, because of his conversion to Judaism, probably primarily has a Jewish worldview. Does that make sense? Okay. So what he did was he interpreted the world that he viewed through a Jewish lens. Now, often when you read introductions to the Gospel of Luke, they they jump over this word instructed. Um, what you find, different translators will translate different ways, um, but I think that's a good translation, the way you've been instructed. What we find is he is an individual that is giving us a Jewish way of interpretation. Now, that introduces us to something. It introduces us to a thing called Midrash. And it's not something you need a cream for, okay? <laughs> midrash is a technique. Uh, it comes from a Hebrew word, dara, which means to investigate or to seek. And it's, it's a way of trying to understand how the ancient Jewish stories are applicable to a different era, a different audience, and a different time. So unless we understand that the Gospels are primarily Jewish books, and that they are doing some midrash, investigating and interpreting and debating, then we won't understand why there are differences between them. The style of Jewish interpretation, midrashic interpretation, is not really concerned with a Western mentality of historical accuracy in the sense of linear chronology. That's our problem as Western people. That's what we think. A comes before B, B comes before D, and D comes before G. In other words, that's our way of reading and interpreting history. That's not the Jewish way of doing it. You're not reading necessarily literal in the sense of if you had a camcorder back then, this is how it actually went down. 
that's not the Gospels. It's not giving you a literal history. What we are doing is we're listening in on the Jewish experience and the way the Jews processed the information that was handed down to them for millennium. I mean, for thousands of years. And then how it integrates with Jesus. And then what do you do with these new teachings that Jesus began to proclaim? So a Jewish way of interpretation or midrashic interpretation is filtering every new experience through the remembered history of their people. So that should make this chart, let me go back to it again, make some more sense. In other words, old wine, new wine, old wineskins, Judaism, new wineskins, what we now are calling Christianity. They wouldn't call it back that back in the first century, but it's a new Judaism, a new way of of looking at life and in, and the teachings of Jesus are introducing uh, new things. So you have people that would get upset because they feel that their duty was to defend their tradition, to defend the stories that they grew up on. How do they do that? Well, they will disagree the way Jews disagree through questions, argumentation and questions. What group did that the most in the ministry of Jesus? The Pharisees, the Pharisees, because they are trying to defend an old tradition for many, many uh, years. And they often came to Jesus with questions. When Jesus responded in a Jewish way to a question with a question, they often got frustrated and eventually they said, this guy blasphemes. In other words, they began to throw accusations at him. But this is a long-standing tradition within Judaism. So what you find is where there are two Jews, there's an argument. In other words, that's the way they process reality through argumentation and wrestling with it. And um, what we find is this is often the way the Jews interpreted some of the things. So look here at the bottom here. If we are to understand the uniqueness and power of these gospels, we must uh, they must be recovered, remembered, and understood first in their setting and in their context and through the way the Jews looked at the world. So Midrash is trying to rejuvenate the faith from one generation to another against the backdrop of societal changes. Their world fell apart when they went into exile in the Old Testament. How do you continue to obey Torah now that you're not in Jerusalem, now that there's, uh, there's no temple now, that type of thing? So... We are often afraid of debate because this disagreement might shake our world or something. That's what kept Judaism alive. The ability to debate. What is the practicality of this? How does it apply? 
in our day and in our age. Christianity is not good at that. Christianity does not like debate. And that's why there's this whole cottage industry called apologetics. There's one answer, and that one answer has to be defended. And that one answer has to be agreed upon by everyone. That's why many of the church decrees were developed early on. These uh, these creeds um, were such that everyone was to fall in line and to look through the same lens. At that point, the Christian church began to leave the ability to debate which actually keeps their, their, uh, their organization or their religion alive and practical and relevant. Right now, our inability to debate is why the younger generation is leaving the church. You're not allowed to ask questions. You're supposed to fall in line. If it was good enough for my grandfather, it should be good enough for you. That is, that's probably why many kids, the age of my boys, have said, see ya. But we, you have to have the ability to debate and to disagree. Okay. So do you have any disagreements? <laughs> any, any thoughts here? This is the last slide for tonight. So we're not going to get into that Luke 1 and Genesis comparison tonight. Hold on to your handout. We'll come back to that next week. So Luke does not give us the name of the author. He dedicates it to Theophilus, but he doesn't say who he is. So you have to investigate who even the author is here. There's two key factors here that I think are important to keep in mind. Uh, one, whoever this author is, and I'm going to assume it's Luke, but he's not an eyewitness. He's not an eyewitness to the events he's talking about. Number two, he has access to some previous material that summarize at least certain parts of the life of Jesus. And it tells us that... Um, that there are things that he investigated. You know, he's a detective here. Now, I do want you to turn open to Acts chapter one. This is a good point to insert this. So in Acts chapter one, I want you to notice the way it begins. Verse one. It says in this uh, particular translation, I wrote the first narrative, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up after he had given instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After he had suffered, he also presented himself alive to them by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. So it's the same audience, this Theophilus, and there's a reference to volume one. That is the Gospel of Luke. So when you put all these things together, and then 
uh, you put together sections in the book of Acts. You can look at this on your own if you want. There's not we, not W-E-E, -E, that's a typo, but we, W-E, the we sections, the author is traveling with Paul on his missionary journeys. So scholars are concluding that Luke is most likely the individual. But even there, there's some debate about that. Secondly, the Gospel of Luke, who is the audience? Boy, there's a lot of midrash about that. Uh, a lot of discussion and debate about who he is writing to. Is it a Jewish audience? Um, is it a Gentile audience? Uh, is it a combination? That type of thing. Now, when you compare the Gospel of Luke to the Gospel of Matthew, those are the only two Gospels that have genealogies. Matthew takes the genealogy back to Abraham, but Luke takes the genealogy all the way back to Adam. And um, what's interesting is there's kind of a budding universalism that is found in this gospel. By universalism, I mean it includes Gentiles. It includes not just agricultural perspectives, but some cosmopolitan perspectives as well. So this gospel is very unique. It's a gospel that has intrigued people for years and years. So what we're going to do um, as we continue to um, just loiter in the gospel of Luke over the next several weeks um, what we're going to do is we're going to try to see how all this works out. So final thoughts for tonight. So this first paragraph, that's as far as we got tonight in verses one through four, gives us information that is pertinent to the way we read the book later. The last thing I want to talk about here tonight is this most excellent Theophilus. If this is an individual, the title that is attached here, uh, most excellent or most honorable Theophilus, many have, have guessed that maybe he was an individual that was of uh, some social prominence. Was he a royal official of some sort? Um, and if he was, how did he have the name Theophilus here? Theos meaning God, phileo meaning love. Was that his given name or was he too a proselyte to Judaism? And was that a name change? Is he an individual or is this a group of people? Is this a group of Gentile converts that you can see right near the end of this slide here? who also had undergone what Luke had undergone, catechism. Gone through the catechism that instructed them about the story of Israel, the longing for a coming Messiah, the longing for a deliverer, the longing for a homeland, the longing to uh, have peace, uh, all of these type of things that is so prominent in the Old Testament. So it may be that Luke is trying to complete the story that began in the Older Testament of her Bible. And he's showing how it 
relates to Jesus. That's where I want to stop with the slides, but we don't necessarily need to stop with any questions. Uh, do you, is there any other questions, comments uh, that you have tonight that we can talk about before we sign off? Okay, so a lot of this material uh, is the type of material that you, if you haven't been exposed to it before, you might need to, you know, think about it. You might need to kind of go through the handouts again and kind of try to get your arms around it a little bit. Um, don't let that frustrate you. Any new material is always a learning curve. So um, can you imagine those who sit under the teaching of Jesus and all the new things he introduced, they too would have to process it and figure out how it fits into what they already know. Any thoughts? All right, I'm gonna let you go then and uh, look over the handout uh, in, prior to next week, because we're gonna do that comparison between Genesis and the rest of Luke chapter one. Okay. Have a good night, everyone. We'll see you soon. Good night. You uh, too. Good night. Bye. Bye. Thanks. Bye. Bye. Bye.